Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish, three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. (sighs) And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city.
Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Thank you, Noah. So well done. I appreciate that, brother. Reading is interpretation, and you did a beautiful job interpreting it, and it really helps also that you look probably something like what Jonah looked like. I just think it helps. I'm sorry. Look, look a lot more like you than me. So uh, it's beautiful. I don't know if he was that handsome, but thank you, brother. Really appreciate it. Love our Ohio contingent over there. Thanks for that. Noah has an article on the Gospel Coalition. Just came out this week on the importance of theology. <laughs> oh. Um, <laughs> but there, you, you do say in the article, I read it, that theology is the queen of the sciences, including philosophy. Yes, yeah, so there you go. Thanks, though. Appreciate it. So good. Man, what an amazing story. The, the problem, though, with Jonah is familiarity and overemphasis on just one element of the story. It's like Noah's Ark. First time I ever met my son Sam, he was six years old sitting in an adoption agency and I walked in and he was sitting there eating a piece of pie and playing with this little plastic Noah's Ark. We still have it, they gave it to us. It was very significant to us when we met him there. And um, he was playing with it. If you look at that toy of Noah's Ark, you would never get the impression that that story is about the judgment of the earth by a wrathful God. <laughs> it's all about the animals two by two. Isn't that cute? No, it's not. And Jonah's focus it becomes very familiar to us, and it's this amazing story of this great fish when the great fish is really not the point of the story. That's just one element in the story, but it tends to get all the attention. And one preacher said one time, this, the, the great fish gets all the attention, but the story's about the great God who made the great fish and made Jonah and everything else. So why in the world are we preaching through Jonah for a few weeks? 
Well, there is a logic to this. We try to think about everything we do. Kenny's put in so much time taking the lead on our sermon series and how they fit together. Well, we've just finished the book of Luke. And one of the main reasons we wanted to preach through the book of Luke was because of God's profound heart and love for the least and the lost. Hoping that we would know that we are the least and the lost and that God loves us like that and then we are freed to love other people with the kind of love he has for us. That was our deep prayer as we went through the book of Luke and I believe that God answered that prayer in some beautiful ways. But now we don't want to leave that theme behind because really that's the theme of the gospel. It's the theme of being disciples and making disciples like Randy was just talking about. That's what we're about. We're about knowing God in Christ and becoming like Him and following Him and proclaiming the good news that makes disciples and then establishing and equipping those disciples so that they make disciples. That's how the whole thing works. And so we don't want to leave that theme behind, but we thought it'd be helpful to actually look at a counterexample to someone who gets the amazing grace of God, and that's Jonah. And so we want to think about for a few weeks what getting the gospel doesn't look like, understanding the grace of God doesn't look like, and it's Jonah. Jonah really is another example of the older brother in the gospel of Luke in the story of the prodigal son. Another story that really isn't about the prodigal son primarily. It's about who? The older brother. The one who doesn't understand grace. There's so many similarities between that older brother and Jonah who understands grace on one level but not at the most important and deepest level. And so we wanted to look at the older brother here in the Old Testament, Jonah, who understands who God is, but doesn't understand the grace of God the way we all need to. And so we want to consider his bad example for us. It's amazing how it ends so starkly and suddenly, and with a lot of uncertainty even about Jonah's eternal state. And so we want to look at that. And then we're going to move into a study of the book of Daniel, which is an Old Testament example of someone who really understands what it means to be faithful and to be about God and His ways and His Word, even in a hostile culture, even in a context where we see Daniel and his friends in a culture that's opposed to them and wants to make sure they completely assimilate into that culture, these guys are amazing examples to us of contributing to the society, but not conforming to it. Making a contribution without compromise. Being a blessing without blending in. And as we live out our Christian faith in an increasingly hostile culture to God and His ways, we need to think about their example of being a blessing but not blending in. So then we'll look at Daniel. And then in May, we're going to dive into a study of the book of Acts, picking up where Dr. Luke leaves off in his gospel as he writes the book of Acts, talking about the church becoming established and flourishing and changing the world in the midst of great opposition and persecution. Helping us think about being resilient, faithful followers of Jesus, no matter what. 
who aren't defined by the culture, but defined by Jesus. And we'll take a glorious tour through the book of Acts. But this morning, we begin by looking at the book of Jonah. That was just beautifully read for us, and, and it's so helpful to us. It, it's a pretty short book. Isn't it amazing how quickly you can get through one book of the Bible, this minor prophet, called minor not because of it's unimportant, but minor because of its relative size to the major prophets. So we're in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament here, this focus on God's people and their relationship to different culture and being called out of idolatry and into faithfulness. And so we have this picture of Jonah here. And I want to look at the first three verses again and consider just uh, by way of introduction. That's my job this morning, just to introduce the book. And then we will have faithful preachers take us through this book in more detail. But as we look at Jonah, the first three verses really set the stage for us. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down in to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Second time it said that, going down, going away, fleeing, thinking he can actually free the presence of God. And what we see in just these three verses is God's call to Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against their evil. It's very important to note that God's amazing forgiveness and grace is not because he doesn't see evil as evil. It's not because he doesn't see evil as a great problem and a great offense to him and his holiness. He calls it evil. Throughout this book, he calls evil, evil. This is not some forgiveness that comes out of ambivalence. No, this is forgiveness that comes from a holy and just and righteous and wrathful God. And we'll get to that in a bit. And so, Jonah's call to go to Nineveh and preach against their evil, rebuking them for their sin and calling them to repentance is what God's grace and justice lead to. And then we see Jonah's great sin and foolishness and rejection of God's ways here. Even as the prophet of God, The one who is called, his main job is to represent God before people as a prophet, but he flees from the Lord. And in this, he sins against a holy God. And throughout this book, like in the book of Luke we've just finished preaching through, we get this contrasting picture of the prophet of God who is from the people of God who is completely missing the point. He's missing what grace is really about. He's missing the deeper realities of who the God he represents is. And so he is contrasted throughout the book, as we'll see, with these pagan sailors who have such a profound sense of who God is that they respond even in offering sacrifice. 
we have him contrasted with the people of Nineveh who respond to God's call in their lives in a way the prophet of God doesn't. Throughout the book of Luke, we saw those who were the least likely in our estimation to understand God in his ways, understanding God in his ways. And the card-carrying religious people, even the religious leaders very often, are missing the point. They're missing the deeper realities of what it means to be obedient, faithful church attenders. And so we don't want to be someone who, rec- who doesn't see that very often those at the margins, those who are the least and the lost, often in evident ways, are closer to the kingdom than those who appear to be having everything together. You know, we just had a, a time for parents on Friday night uh, of kids who are wayward and struggling. And we started off our time by saying, well, what does it mean to be wayward? What does it mean to be struggling? Because we're all struggling. And if we look at the, the Gospel of Luke, we can see that sometimes it's pretty evident that the son sleeping with the pigs is closer to God than the son who's doing all the right things at home but doesn't understand grace. Hasn't gotten to the end of himself yet. He thinks he deserves a whole lot because of how what a good boy he's been. And and so he misses the whole point. And and we we don't want to be among those who are doing all the right things but missing the point. And so we see in the book of Jonah this, this contrasting picture between these people who you would assume are well beyond God's reach being contrasted with the prophet who's supposed to be right where he's supposed to be, but he's far away from God. And so we've got to back up and see some major themes here. And I just want to talk about four for us. The first is the rightness of divine judgment. The rightness of divine judgment that comes from God's holiness and our sinfulness. The second one is the problem of grace, which is truly amazing. The third theme is, I want to highlight in Jonah is God's sovereignty, his abiding, ruling presence, including his sovereignty over his grace. And finally, number four, we are ambassadors of this grace. We're ambassadors of this God, of this message of salvation, speaking the truth in love, especially to our enemies, especially to those who hate us. There is something about the Christian message that when preached in love to those who hate us, it has a power that we see at work in the early church, helping the church to become what it became. We need to see the ability, the opportunity, the privilege of loving those who hate us, loving your enemies. God loves your enemies. That's the theme of our our message. God loves your enemies. We wanted to make it personal. And what's wild about this is as Christians, our enemies are often God's enemies. And so that means we have the the call to speak into the evil of the day, no doubt about it, but mingle beautifully with a love for those to whom we speak. And so we recognize that we're ambassadors of this message, loving our enemies along the way. So, number one, 
the rightness of divine judgment. I must tell you, I am so grateful for the thoughtfulness of our corporate worship here. I'm so thankful for the time we just had. I was so grateful for how beautifully God's lavish love for us and delight in forgiving us was put on display in our worship time. I hope you pay attention. I hope you don't just put it on autopilot and uh, sort of disconnect intellectually a little bit when we're having corporate worship. It, it's, it's so important to tap into the message. It, it was an overwhelmingly wonderful message of God's exhaustive, extravagant love that he never forgives begrudgingly or loves in a stingy way. Oh, that's such a good message. And I was, I was soaking that in myself, and I was praying for so many of you I know have a hard time believing that God's really like that toward you, that he loves you like that, that he forgives you joyfully and eagerly. He delights in pouring out grace. But I was also aware that anytime there's a group of people this size, there are other people who, who are sitting there not very aware of their need for forgiveness. Not very aware of their need for God's love. They sort of presume upon it. I talked to a guy once and I told, I told him God loves you. And he said, I know. That's his job. That's what he does. It, it was just so presumptuous. It, it sent chills down my spine. And we use terms like God loves unconditionally. But in our culture, when people hear that, you know what they hear? God doesn't care that much about sin. He just says, yeah, we're good. We're good. But God's justice is right and good and full. And his, his holiness is where it all starts. Because when we see God in his holiness like Isaiah does in Isaiah 6, or Peter does when he's in the boat and sees Jesus' power, when you see God's holiness, when you see him for who he is, you look at yourself and you don't say, that's his job, to love me. You say, woe is me, I'm undone. Or with Peter, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. You see your sin for what it is. You don't come with cheap grace presumptuously into the presence of God. So I don't know which of those two you may be this morning. The one who's having a hard time believing you're really forgiven or maybe the one who doesn't think you need it that much. You're a pretty good guy. You're pretty impressive. People are generally pretty impressed by you. You got it together, man. You got this thing figured out. You have a really hard time if you get a B on an assignment even, which is why I just give C's sometimes just to help students. <laughs> oh, I'm tempted. I've never done it, but man, am I tempted. Um, and so I don't know where you lean in this, but it's so important to realize that God is holy and he rightly judges sin and he's wrathful against sin. We live in an ambiguous age. We live in an apathetic age. You know, I try to keep up with all the terminology of the youth so I can stay cool, throw it around. Actually, one of my favorite things is to embarrass my kids by using their phrases and terms in the most corny way possible. Like they'll say something and I'll say, are you capping me right now? If you don't know, cap means lie. And you 
They're not even sure exactly how it came about. But, you know, throw around these phrases like, was that riz-filled or what, I'll say. Just trying to make them really embarrassed by how corny I am. But, but one of the expressions I'm having a really hard time figuring out is chill. Now, we used chill back in the 70s. But, man, it's used much more broadly now. Hey, how you doing? Chilling. Hey, I really like her. She's chill. I wonder if she'll come over and chill. Uh, he's a good dude. He's chill, you know. How you doing? Chilling. Uh, so I'm just not sure. Chill can mean uh, somebody's cool. Or it means I'm relaxed. Or let's relax. I mean, there's all these uses of it. But it's starting to bug me. Because of its ambiguity. Like being chill is becoming this ideal state, right? Like, I'm chill. Well, I wish you were more than that. I don't think chill is a word we'd use for God. Uh, Chill. That's what we think. People say, yeah, I'm really chill. Stuff doesn't bother me. I'm really patient. And I'll think, you know what? I've been watching you. You're not patient. You just don't care. You just don't care. You're not patient, you're apathetic. You see, the more you care, the more patience you need. And God needs a lot of patience, and he has it. That's what we're learning here. He's not chill. He's patient. And he's patient as a perfectly wrathful, holy, just God. And so we need to hate sin and evil as much as he does and oppose it and see the rightness of the judgment. God doesn't forgive because he's chill. He forgives because he's amazingly gracious. Which means saving faith always has to include repentance. I don't hear enough about repentance. We hear about God's love. We hear about the need to trust him. But with Trust is repentance. And by the way, I don't think terms like ask Jesus into your heart are the best ways to describe what happens in conversion. (laughs) Um, Melissa thinks that she agrees with me on that. So um, uh, what what we do is repent and believe. That's what the Bible says. What, What must we do to be saved? And the message is repent. Turn from your sin and your evil. That's sinful and evil. And believe, trust Jesus, and depend on his righteousness instead of your filthy rags and your sin and evil. And and that's incredibly freeing. It's, It's a gift from God. Repentance is an amazing gift from God and a freeing grace of God. But the rightness of God's judgment is where we need to realize we start in this. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what we do. Repentance is a necessary part of our lives when we become Christians and as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, never working for our salvation, it's by grace, but working it out. You know, I just read day before yesterday an article about the way the Puritans cared for women. Oh, it's a beautiful article in the uh, Christians, uh, no, in, the, in a journal I read. So, and, and there, was a, there was an article about a guy named John Cotton, this Puritan, who had a friend who was a pastor. And this, his friend made advances toward a woman who was another man's wife. 
and he lost his ministry. And John Cotton wrote to his friend out of love, and you know what he says to him? It was just stunning to me. He said, what you need to do, dear brother, is read Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of repentance of his sin with Bathsheba. This honest before you and only you have I sinned, this incredible example of repentance. And he said, what you need to do then is fall to your knees and not get up until Psalm 51 becomes the cry of your sinful heart. Man, do we talk to people like that anymore? Do we take God's holiness and sin so seriously that we view our response to sin that way? I got to read you what he wrote to the guy's wife, what John Cotton wrote to the guy's wife. He says, commend my dear love to your good wife. The companion of your labors travails in sorrow and pray the Lord enlarge her heart to holy helpfulness to you under this heavy burden. Wow. Let's not believe that that's just what Christians used to be like. Let's see sin for what it is and see it as at the weighty thing that it is and walk into it knowing that repentance can lead to freedom and you have freedom in Christ. But not if it's cheap. Not if it's presumptuous. Not if it doesn't really see it as forgiveness, but just chilling. I love Karen Purvis. She, she went to be with Jesus, but she was this incredible, brilliant, godly woman, wise, who helped, helped people understand how to work with kids from hard places. And one of the phrases she taught Donna and me when we became parents was, when a kid's disrespectful, it's good to say, Let's try that again, this time with respect. <laughs> I love that. That's repentance. God's the God of the do-over, like I said a few weeks ago. He, he loves to give us forgiveness, but not by sauntering into his presence. So the first, first theme is the rightness of judgment, but the second theme is God's sovereignty. We're going to see his sovereignty over Jonah. We're going to see his sovereignty over Nineveh. We're going to see his sovereignty over those pagan sailors. We're going to see his sovereignty over the ocean and the great fish and the plant as he causes it to grow and then causes it to wilt. We're going to see that he is sovereign in everything, including his sovereign grace that's never earned, never deserved, that would defy the definition of grace. And so we recognize the sinfulness of sin, but we also recognize what I would call the problem of grace. And it's that God is astoundingly gracious. This is what bothers Jonah. This is what bothers godly people throughout the Bible. It's really interesting to me that in our society for my whole life, in the apologetics I've, I've been doing my whole life, the evangelism I've been doing my whole life, the conversations, the debates, the discussions, so often, I mean, a major proportion of the time, the issue is how could God allow evil? How could God judge anybody? How could God ever send anybody to hell? And I'm not saying those aren't difficult issues to wrestle with and important issues to wrestle with, but when you look at the Bible, 
I really don't think the problem of God's judgment or evil or hell is the big problem. I think a bigger problem in the Bible, even for godly people, not just Jonah, is the problem of grace. How could a holy God be so forgiving? And it bothers people like the older brother, like Jonah, but it bothers godly people too. Like Jeremiah and Isaiah and the martyrs in Revelation who are all crying out, How long, Lord? How much longer? You know what he says to Abraham? You're going to get the promised land, but not in your generation, not in your kids' generation, not in your grandkids' generation. You know why? Because the Amorites, the people who live there now, those wicked people, I mean wicked people, their sin has not yet reached its fullness, he says. I can think of Abraham saying, Lord, shall I read their resume to you and remind you that it should have reached its fullness? The martyrs in Revelation are saying, Lord, how much longer before our blood is vindicated? The problem of grace biblically is a bigger problem than the problem of God's judgment. It tells you something about, really, I think, an ethnocentrism many of us have bought into that has a life that doesn't think we deserve judgment. And and so we just have a problem. God's got an anger problem, we think. Godly people in the Bible think he's got a grace problem. They think he's got a patience problem. He's way too long, slow to anger. They wish he would pick up the pace on the way to anger a bit. And that's what Jonah's saying. He's saying, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm not going to Nineveh and preaching repentance because I know you. I know you. I know if I go and preach repentance and they repent, you'll forgive them, and I'm not interested in that. And before we become like Jonah toward Jonah, Let's understand the guy. Let me, let me read to you just one little example of what these Ninevites were like. Just one little example. Um, here's an Assyrian ruler, what he wrote on a stone pillar. He boasts of flaying, in other words, cutting open nobles that he captured. He says, I burned to death 3,000 captives. I left not one hostage alive. I cut off the hands and feet of some. He's boasting about this. I cut off their noses and ears and fingers. The eyes of numerous soldiers I put out. Maidens I burned in a holocaust. It's easy to be judgmental toward Jonah. He had a beef. He had a legit beef, people. That's a phrase I grew up with. Um, And and into this, we recognize that God has good news of great joy for all peoples, including Ninevites, including your worst enemy. He has good news of great joy. And let me tell you, the last three years have been incredibly brutal for relationships in our society and in the church. I think the combination of racial strife, the election, politics in general, Trump, all the COVID stuff, add to that the isolation of working out these deep issues mostly on social media. 
And we have seen growing animosity and hatred and division among people, even God's people. And uh, Kenny, Kenny told me about a sign he saw. Where was it, Kenny? In Balboa, there was a sign that said, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Except for you, Gavin Newsom. I love the honesty, man. I love the honesty, right? But just fill in, this is Kenny's idea, fill in who's your except, right? may not be Newsome, but it may be Trump. It may be anybody who would ever vote for Trump or anybody who didn't and doesn't intend to, right? Or somebody who wore a mask or didn't wear a mask. What's that? I didn't hear. Okay. Um, yeah, or, or whatever the, the divisions that have creeped up in our lives. It's just amazing, especially when you work things out not face to face over dinner, but behind the screen. Kevin Hart said one time one of the worst things about our day is you can say whatever you want online and not get punched in the mouth. There was a day where there were consequences to what you said. Now we feel anonymous. And so we just fire away, and it's brutal. And look, I'm not saying it's not good to have opinions and, and seek justice and have a view on things. That, that's all right. But in the midst of it all, in the midst of the conviction, is there love beautifully infusing all of that and the big agenda of seeing people come to Christ. Seeing people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus wherever they're coming out of, wherever they're coming from, however they may have persecuted you in the past or hated God along the way. No one's ever beyond God's transforming power or lavish grace. No one. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. If God is, how can we not be? That's what he calls us to. I have a hard time being patient and loving toward people in line at the Costco gas pump. I do. I sit there. Some days I'm good. I'm all right. Usually when I don't have somewhere to go, real soon. But can you believe how inefficient, let me rant a bit, but can you believe how, how inefficient people are at the pump? Like they get out, like they've never pumped gas before. That's what it's like. It's like they're reading hieroglyphics. Uh, you, you push the button, pull the pump, do, do the thing, right? The card, come on. I've been tempted to get out and say, sir, can I just do that for you? Right? Can I just do this for you? Because you're highly inefficient, sir. I'm, I promise you, if you're behind me at the line, I'll be as efficient as possible unless there's an act of God that keeps that from happening. I have my credit card out. I don't fumble through my wallet once I'm at the pump. Right? It, it, then you get back in the car and like, what are you doing in there? Just rearranging your whole purse right before you take off? Go, do that later, right? So you can see, I'll, I'll bill you for therapy fees later. But if I have a hard time... Being patient and loving at the Costco gas pump, how am I going to do when somebody really hurts me? 
How am I going to do when there's a, a great offense? See, we got my point is, the reason I would bring up such a ridiculous minor thing is because most of us aren't going to be able to forgive someone who murdered our husband, like Elizabeth Elliot did. Went back and lived with the AUKUS. Right? I have a picture over here. This, this is Elizabeth Elliot. She is with... An, an Alka who killed her husband and his four friends. She's part of this, this people group who speared her husband to death, made her a widow. And her daughter of 10 months, fatherless. And she moved back in with them. And, and never an ounce of revenge in her heart. The the introduction to her biography is just beautiful. It says, no thoughts of revenge crossed her mind. On the contrary, she felt with an increased sense of urgency the need to bring the message of love and redemption to the AUKUS. Now, the reason I use my stupid illustration of Costco is because most of us won't have that kind of dramatic opportunity. Day to day, being loving and forgiving is worked out at Costco. Not in Ecuador, right? I would die for, I would take a bullet for my wife. She's probably not going to have a chance to do that. So how about do the dishes? <laughs> and, and, and be somebody who's able to translate these dramatic, loving things to a family member who's hurt you deeply. To someone that you have a long way to go to get the forgiveness and the ability to eagerly tell them about the love that God has for them. Because you don't have much for them. And so we need God to do a work in our hearts. And we need to see him make us into ambassadors for the glory and grace of God. That's what we're called to. To love our enemies. To be ambassadors for God. Because it's a grand and glorious message that he has solved our sin problem and the judgment we deserve is put on Jesus. Jesus takes the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the justice of God for us. And so, yes, God's love's unconditional. Why? Because Jesus meets the conditions. And so for us, it becomes this exhaustively freeing, forgiving thing because Jesus paid the penalty. It's not just let bygones be bygones, but we become messengers then of the good news of great joy for all people. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We need to hate sin. We need to oppose sin. We need to prophetically preach against sin and evil wherever we see it, but we need to do it in a way that recognizes we needed reconciliation. And we were children of wrath. And we had nothing but hell waiting for us. And God saved us. So there's no self-righteousness in this. There's a humble recognition that God is for us in spite of us. 
Not because we were so worthy or deserving. And so we become ambassadors of this amazing message. Let's not be like Jonah toward Jonah. We all have a whole lot of older brother in us, don't we? Who thinks we need less grace than the other guy. God has killed the hostility and given us the ability to be forgiven and become those who love because we've been so loved and forgiven and forgive because we've been so forgiven. Lord, help us. Help us now, Lord, to be people who love because we've been loved and forgive because we've been forgiven. Lord, help us to know you're with us and for us, not because we deserve your love and grace, but because you are loving and gracious beyond measure. And that although our sin be great, your love is greater still. And although we have broken your laws and rebelled against you, you forgive us and you love us and given us the privilege of being ministers of reconciliation. Part of killing the hostility that rages around the world so evidently right now in the Middle East. And Lord, it doesn't mean there are no bad guys or good guys. It doesn't mean there isn't justice and injustice and that we should fight for good and justice. But Lord, it does mean that in it, we need to have hearts like yours that sees evil for what it is and calls it what it is, but moves toward others with the message of liberating grace and lavish love that you've poured out on us. And so we pray that the church would be the church, that we at Grace would be a great example of this kind of love. And we pray this in the name of the one who gave himself fully. Amen.